You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Welcome to another episode of HEDEX. Hi, Martin. Hi there, Carl. It's um, great to be back in the studio again with HEDEX. In a, in a very interesting couple of weeks in the higher education sec- sector, there's been some interesting new data coming out. I can remember us commenting on the quilt data a few weeks back and how challenging that was for the sector. The data that's come out in the last two weeks is the publication of the Times Higher Education Impact Rankings for how well universities around the globe are performing against the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and Australian universities have done particularly well. Really? Okay. Tell me more about that. Well, um, I mean, you'll be aware that there's 17 or so different goals in the UN Sustainable Development Ambitions for, yeah. the, for the world. They've been out a few years now. And it couldn't be a better set of measures, really, for the sort of purposes that so many of our universities around the world, and particularly in Australia, have for how they seek to contribute to communities. So in areas of, of equity, of, of Um, alleviating poverty of quality of water, quality of land, quality of sustainable development practices, a whole range of both social and some of the harder science contributions to the welfare of people and the nature of our planet get measured and compared in in this latest case between more than a thousand universities around the world. And Australian universities have done particularly well. They've, um, we've got We've got um, several universities in the in the top ten. Um, Sydney University, number two in the world, but a number of universities, including places like Sunshine Coast, for instance, the highest performer in Queensland. So across the spectrum of Australian universities, strong performers against the UN Sustainable Development Goals. They'll be pleased with that. Why is that? Why is that the case? Why are they so strong? What are we, what are they doing? Well, I think we, we we have a context here in which our universities have always seen. Um, the, the, the contribution they can make to community and to environmental science measures of, of, of great importance. And I, I think we've at least, at least in the narrative and, and at least in the um, vernacular of, of leadership, a very strong commitment to equity. But, I mean, as we'll go on to explore today, the, the extent to which that plays out in how all students in universities have an equitable experience and whether staff in Australian universities think that their treatment is equitable right mm. now. Um, maybe there's a bit of a dilemma here. On the, on the public contribution of our universities, they're performing particularly well, but their practices for their communities of their staff and their students are under challenge a little bit now. And we heard a little bit about this in our episode with Sally Kift um, last year. She referred to others coining the phrase panic godgy for the pedagogy practices that were suddenly... Um, turned online. I, th- I think since then we've we've probably had to ask ourselves some pretty hard questions of is the way that we're doing our teaching and learning in Australian universities now we're in 2021 and presumably sort of reaching some new new normality is it really providing the experiences that both our staff and our students want to see and there's some big questions there. Yeah no doubt. But that's what's been happening in the universities. What about in, in the worlds that you've spent so much of your time working in, the co- corporate world of Australia, Carl? What, what are you up to and what's happening there? Well, there's, there's a couple of different different angles. So we do a lot of work with um, 
traditional businesses trying to or needing to shift and transform to be more relevant in the current era. So that was obviously, that was accelerated through 2020 and continues to provide uh, challenge and opportunity for those companies that are recognizing this to be the new norm and then finding ways to build uh, integrated practices so it's sustainable for them. Um, so look, I'm doing a lot of education at the moment, a lot of um, senior leadership work and some board consultancy, helping organizations understand what needs to happen culturally, particularly um, to ensure that they are productive. And so that's fascinating, particularly with boards that many of them were established uh, more than five years ago uh, with people on the board, with directors that haven't, uh, aren't necessarily the most progressive. So they're certainly interested and they're, they're up for the challenge, but in their own experience and their own business acumen is, is dated to some extent. So to help them understand the needs of a distributed workforce of people working from home, uh, how an organization can and still be productive based on that and help them believe that and understand that to be the case. Um, fascinating. The other thing I'm doing is working with a lot of consultancies that are scrambling now with their own culture. Um, because they uh, look, their agencies themselves, obviously, generally, I should say, are populated by younger people, uh, younger people who may or may not have had any sort of conditioning around a formal or traditional workplace. So the diversity and the the difference between uh, one person's working experience and another, uh, it, it's substantially different. So trying to find some cohesive element to bring a unifying element together. Uh, so that agencies can support their clients effectively. Other than that, I'm doing some work with Channel 9 shortly as a keynote on culture for the Big Ideas show. One of the uh, one of Australia's leading national sporting teams is also um, looking at how they improve and optimise their culture. So no shortage of uh, work on this side of the fence. Well, it's interesting hearing you talk about size of fences, Carl, because in many ways the issues that I'm seeing them at the moment are that we probably need the fences to be coming down in our universities. I, I think one of the most striking features I've been hearing lately is the emergence of hybrid learning as, as maybe a dominant paradigm in the way that our universities are going to need to think about themselves and their relationships with their stakeholders in the future. I think the concept of hybrid ways of working with a combination of working from home and working on campus and, and hybrid ways of learning that um, no longer make the sharp distinction between online and, and classroom-based learning practices, but see a blend and a hybrid version of that becoming the, the new way that we need to prepare for our universities in the future. And whilst that's probably a widely accepted picture of what the future will, will be, what exactly it looks like and how well prepared and how do we actually get there are the questions that are probably most in the mind when it comes to teaching and learning and our chances around the country right now. And that, in many ways, is a great segue to this week's guest. And who is this week's guest? Our guest today on HeadX is Dr David Kellerman, a senior lecturer in engineering at University of New South Wales. Um, David's widely seen as a pioneer in educational technology and universities. David, welcome to HeadX. Yes, thank you very much for having me and asking me on, Martin. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you today. Great. Well, it's, it's nice for us and for people in the sector that listen to this podcast series to have a, a few insights for someone that's been so involved in some of the innovations that have been been happening in the sector and I might start by just asking you David that the acceleration the sector has seen in adopting online education is something that I assume from what I've read about you that you'd have been well prepared for having spent so much of your recent academic career exploring 
how technology can be used for ed engineering education. I wonder if you can just start our, our conversation off today by summarizing what approach you've been taking to applying new technologies in the learning journeys of your engineering students. What have you been up to? Yeah, well, I was very well prepared. I, in fact, I was so well prepared, I was kind of rubbing my hands together going, oh, this is going to be great. You know, what, what a fantastic opportunity for us to road test some technology. But the reason behind why I was prepared, I think, is a fascinating one, which is that I'm really interested in inclusivity and accessibility, and I believe it should be a ver version 1.0 design element, which is the first time you employ any kind of tool in education, it should meet all of the requirements of accessibility, and particularly within a framework known as universal design for learning. And many people will nod their head and go, yeah, I know universal design for learning. Some may not. Uh, the basic principle is that universal design for learning gets rid of even administrative barriers to accessibility. So one example I use is that in most office buildings, you have a set of stairs and an elevator, and you might like walking to the stairs, but one day you roll your ankle on the weekend and uh, you're hobbling around on crutches, so you take the elevator. You know, you don't have to go to the doctor and be diagnosed as a cripple and then access your business workplace uh, department, get labeled as disabled, and then have a team of strong people lift you up the stairs so you can get to your office. But that's exactly what we make students do uh, in the traditional model who may, for example, have something like dyslexia where they need to get diagnosed, labeled, and then have a reader sit next to them in an exam and stigmatize them. In universal design for learning, the idea is that the person just gets on with it. The tools they need are there. And so an example is if you have a digital exam, if it's got an immersive screen reader tool, nobody has to be diagnosed. Nobody needs to be stigmatized and it's there. So I'd been employing this principle for a few years in my design. And one of those included live broadcast and live production of my lectures and a complete online mode where students who couldn't make it into the campus that day or had some particular accessibility challenge that we put in front of them that we could break down that barrier. And essentially what happened with COVID when the world went into lockdown was that every student on earth was faced with an accessibility challenge. And isn't it great to be prepared for that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are a few more people that wish that they had been better prepared. And um, I'm sure we're getting better prepared every day that we experience some of this. I, I wonder how, how typical you think the practices are and the driving forces behind your approach to this are compared with, I, I guess you have some insight into most of your colleagues at UNSW and other people involved in engineering education around the world. Do, how, how well prepared were others in the way that you were well prepared for what happened in 2020, do you think? I think there's a pretty big spectrum. You know, there were people who were saying, oh, I've been teaching fully online for years and it was just another day in the office for me. And there were some people who got stressed to near breaking point with not only the pressure that was placed upon them, but the pressure they placed upon themselves in maybe often thinking it was different to what it was. Um, I often really refer to it as 
a challenge of getting the basics right in the digital environment as opposed to the physical environment. And I think we saw a lot of people suddenly thinking that they had to be video editors or, you know, create all of these digital activities rather than realizing that what we actually needed to do was just connect people together digitally in a really communicative and inclusive way. So just developing that a bit further, you, you actually wrote an article for the Time Tower Education um, publication where you commented on how many academics in universities were perhaps be becoming or required to be become content creators. And I think your, the article commented on how challenging this was both for them, but also their students. What, what do you think are the issues there as you see them? Yeah, well, the, the, the habit was to think, okay, well, we're doing these Zoom calls. Maybe what we need to start doing for asynchronous students is package content up into video. And now all of a sudden we've got academics desperately trying to learn video editing software and, you know, make these punchy 15-minute videos. Uh, and they're just not probably not going to be very good there are of course some academics who do an amazing job who are really youtubers on the side it's their second job um but it's just not what education is you know we've got a tradition of buying a textbook saying to students go buy that textbook it's it's a proof that the the content was never really what we were offering it was the community and the engagement and the environment of higher education. That, that's what really changes people's lives, you know. And today we have all of these digital certifications, you know, a Google whatever certification in something or other. And that's fine. That's a piece of knowledge or a piece of learning or, or a capability, but it's not an education. We might, might return to that in a little while, but just um, your description of various academics in the last 12 months, maybe longer, being variously able and, and, and capable of dealing with the challenges they've put up, been put under. What would your observations be of, of how our universities have handled the introduction of technology into the activities of academics over the longer term, and particularly with the disruptions caused by the pandemic? Have, have our universities been able to look after this variable capability of their academics well, do you think? Well, if I'm going to be brutally honest, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that universities did much more than survive in 2020. And I'm still not really seeing or hearing any substantial changes in the higher education sector to adapt to what is coming, which is hybrid education. Um, so, uh, you know, to be honest, I saw very little in 2020 that I thought was particularly good. I, I know that a lot of people were patting themselves on the back going, yeah, we survived the pandemic and whatever, but I actually just don't think people have done a very good job. I don't think universities have done a very good job. I don't think that the necessary investments have been made. And I don't think the level of thought leadership necessary to do that has been put in place either. We, we've seen long-standing claims by universities that they have great commitment to, to varying degrees, to digital innovation and a focus on the student experience. Yet it could be argued that the business model of our universities still appears to focus on 
rankings and reputation that perhaps are, are more research-based than anything else. Do you, do you believe there's any misalignment between how universities currently compete and what they're saying about their commitment to digital innovation, the student experience? Do you see a mismatch there? Yes, there's a huge misalignment. Um, education remains the golden goose, the cash cow of universities and research while it is bolstering our reputation is often actually costing us money. So there's a huge imbalance and you know where we are seeing quilt and other measures like that increasing in relevancy. We're seeing uh, re, uh, university rankings like Times Higher Education, you know, slowly adjusting their metrics over time to bring educational quality up in terms of its relevancy. And I, you know, I think that there is something of an equilibrating force occurring, but not as much as there should be. So that's interesting that you're actually seeing change take place there in maybe the historical primacy of research rankings that, that may be over. And do you see that business models and, and competition on real digital innovation and the experiences that we provide to our students will emerge as the replacement for some of those research rankings? Is that what you're hoping and expecting for? Yeah, well, now when we teach a fantastic course and we have students who go out in the workplace, who, who get employed, who fill out their quilt surveys and say, I had a great educational experience who go on to say that my educational institution changed the course of my life. That is real direct impact. And so it, it, it is actually crazy when you think about it that we're holding these universities up on this idea of, of people citing people in a circle, not necessarily to any meaningful output. Now, of course, research has an incredible output. Of course, it's incredible to society. But the way we're measuring it is actually kind of nonsense. Yes, we sometimes measure what's easy to measure rather than what's um, what's really making a difference, don't we? And maybe, I mean, I mean, is it easy to measure the extent to which people are making a real difference with innovation, with educational technology? Do you believe? And is that be becoming more of an more of an issue? and a priority and a possibility with the changes that we've seen in the last 18 months? Yeah, I, it, it, obviously it's difficult and we haven't put a lot of thought into it. We're early on the road. But if you look at how companies do financial reporting, for example, to shareholders, you know, they're usually required to give impact measures, if you will, that, that try to show that the company is doing well and, and is relevant. How many millions of people are using their software each month or you know what's their revenue and licensing fees they're, they're very real numbers and if we generate a piece of educational technology and we can say well there's now 50 million students worldwide who are using the piece of educational technology that came out of UNSW we can measure impact in very meaningful and direct ways and of course we have quilt and and those other direct institutional ones but it is interesting isn't it there's that divide between are we talking about our own educational practice or are we talking about the impact on global education in the same sense that we talk about research so, so you're painting a picture there for me of, of um us getting more nuanced sophisticated i don't know what the, the word quite quite might be but focused on the impact of what we do in our universities is 
do, do, do you see that um, we might be at the start of some genuine disruption in the traditional models of how we do higher education and what higher education is for? I think the, the stage is set for disruption. I don't know that it's going to happen necessarily right now. There's a very big difference between the higher education landscape in Australia compared to the US, for example, where tuition is incredibly exclusive, where, you know, universities brag about only accepting 2% of, of applicants and, and how you have to get a $300,000 loan to go to college. You know, in Australia, going to university is really just open for everybody. Um, and our help scheme has helped to enable that. Uh, and we should be really proud of that. So are we ready for disruption? You know, Coursera and, you know, all of these online certifications. Well, again, they are not education. And they're not going to replace what education is. But the problem is, is are we going to continue to develop an educational experience for online students as we move more and more to that hybrid or, or fully online experience as well? I'm fascinated to see what happens, but my, my guess is that there won't actually be as major disruption as some people might be foretelling. So, so you're painting a picture of the scale and the timing of disruption, but I wonder if I can move our thoughts to the source of disruption. You've, you've mentioned Coursera and, um, and Google there, but I mean, the, the, the pioneers of new models of, of higher education, if we want to focus on higher education, are they most likely to come, in your view, from people like you and ventures like those that you've been involved in from within our existing universities? Or can you see them being more likely to emerge from challenging, you know, challenges from outside the current setup and the current sector? If we, if we put aside the, the how much and when, where do you think it's most likely to come from, a picture of future disruption in education? Well, so there's two main areas of disruption here there is disruption of what is the actual accrediting body and that is to say i have a degree from unsw sydney and unsw sydney have an accredited engineering program and there's the platform that we actually do our education on which is traditionally blackboard moodle canvas maybe d2l sakai it's it's essentially the learning management systems now, I believe that we're in for a huge disruption in that space. I think that the future of higher education platforms is going to be big tech. I think it's going to be Google versus Microsoft, to be honest. We see duopolies pretty commonly emerge in the tech space, you know, iOS and Android and Mac and PC and whatever you want. We, we do tend to ultimately end up with duopolies and I expect that that is going to be a major disruption. But I do think, and maybe I'm being naively optimistic here, but universities have survived thousands of years and we have changed and we have adapted. And I think that we will continue to change and adapt and evolve to being that extremely 
important component of society and civilization, you know, the, those places where young people gather and think and, and learn and have that experience that really elevates them as people. So th this is my prediction. Um, the general march of civilization is that a higher proportion of people get a higher level of education as civilization moves forward. And we expect that to continue. And what I think will happen is that more and more people will get their accreditations via purely online accreditations. And so I think that will change. But I believe that universities will continue to be as popular as ever. So um, that's a great note of optimism for our sector, David. Thank you for sharing that with us. I wonder if you can if I wonder if you can help us understand that if that's where we've got to at some point in the future, what will have got us there? And in other words, what would your advice be to our current universities of what action they might take in response to the phenomena that you see going on and the experiences that our staff and students have had in the last 15 months or so? What what do you think the best thing, the best course of action course of action is that they should take to survive in the way that you expect and hope they will do so what, what should they do well firstly most universities especially australian universities but most universities in the world in the year 2019 were brick and mortar institutions and they essentially relied on the idea that students were there on campus um, in 2020 almost every single university in the world became an online university and completely and exclusively online, the campuses were basically abandoned. In 2021 onwards, we are now hybrid universities. Students, some of them are on campus, but while we adjust to limited social engagement, the possibility like you're experiencing at the moment in Queensland of you know, resurgence and lockdowns, and also the inability of our international students to easily come back into the country and continue their degrees means that there's a, a long tail of having to offer a fully online experience to at least a proportion of our students that's going to go on for a total of about maybe three years. So at that three-year mark, where we have been operating as both a campus and an online, and this is what I mean when I say hybrid, and that is the same cohort where some students are on campus and some of them are online. Why would anybody switch that off? Why would you go after three years? You know, let's flick the switch off. No one can be online anymore. Everyone has to show up to campus to do their exams. You know, you're just not going to. So the future of higher education is hybrid. This is not the same for K to 12. The, the schools open up, the school kids all go back they sit cross-legged in the classroom and they cancel the Zoom license, right? It's done, back to normal. So faced with this challenge, how has Australia responded? Well, as we joked about before, 17, maybe 18 by the time you're listening to this, 17 out of 40 vice chancellors of Australian universities have essentially resigned in the year 2020. And what that means, in spite of what they may have said, is they've looked at the future and gone, put this in the too hard basket. I'm out of here. <laughs> so that's pretty bleak. What that tells us is that there's not a lot of leadership or vision going on here. We don't have 
uh, an industry or a sector in Australia that is looking forward to this challenge as an opportunity to grow and innovate, if anything, they're probably concerned about incredible challenges. Yes, I, th I can empathise with those thoughts about some of the challenges that our leaders have had, both in grappling with the scramble, as you call it, and trying to find the bandwidth for thinking about the future. Thanks very much for joining us today, David Kellerman of University of New South Wales. Thank you, Martin, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And anybody at all who would like to reach out and get in touch, please, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. It's Kellerman with two ends, or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Kellerman. But I, I answer everybody's emails and messages, and I, I really love to help others and to learn from others. So thank you so much for listening. Wow. Okay, Martin, what's your thoughts? Well, there's a lot of uh, very clear messages there, Carl, weren't there? It's, I mean, the, 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 the first takeout that I had is that this is more about, and always was more about, than just getting things online and what you did before and doing it in a new technology-enabled way. It's the, the focus that David brings on being able to connect with students, but connect with all students, and how it means using technology to really recognize the different needs of people rather than lots of, of amateur video content producers suddenly trying to master YouTube is, is a really stark um, insight, I think, into, into, into the challenges that people went through. I mean, how did universities fare? Well, I think in David's world, they did little more than surviving, really. And I mean, here's a very good view for us from the, the trenches and from the, the chalk face and the, and, 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 and the working environments of universities. His view would be that he coped well himself, but that that broadly we weren't supporting our staff as well as as well as we might be. And his message that we're moving to to hybrid and there's no coming back, but we're not moving fast enough when we're not moving and investing quickly enough, is a very strong message from the higher education sector. Yeah, I, I think he's dead right. Uh, and look, hybrid um, service offerings are certainly not a new thing for the majority of industries. I mean, digitization and online influence has been you know, more and more pervasive over the last decade and beyond. Uh, so whilst it's new for higher education, we've got a variety of case studies of businesses that have recognized the trend and adjusted and adapted and performed well. And there's a whole list of those that haven't. And you know, the, the obvious and most cited examples of those that have failed to recognize the customer needs and move quick enough uh, Blockbuster, for instance, obviously, with Netflix um, absolutely monstering them. And at a point in time, um, Blockbuster had the chance to buy Netflix uh, for $50 million and didn't do it because they didn't believe in the online model. And the other one, of course, you know, people talk about Kodak, it's exactly the same, Nokia, the same. Um, just not re recognizing the customer needs at the time and building a adjusted and altered value proposition to um, to meet that. It does worry me. It worries me uh, in any traditional business that we consult to. I'm you know, generally surprised at um, the lack of not urgency, but the lack of know-how in how to flex and move quickly and invest and make things happen. Uh, the tech companies do it incredibly well, so we're not starting with a blank piece of paper. But I do run into, uh, as much as anything else, it's traditional mindset and leaders and board members not putting their hand up openly and saying, you know, we need help. The best, best performing tech companies and organizations across the globe have got a culture where asking for help is the norm. And so that's really what, um, what needs to happen right now.
Well, asking for help is um, a really strong metaphor for, for what the priorities need to be, aren't they? And I mean, David's message is about measuring impact. I, we started the, the episode this week with the good news about the Sustainable Development Goal rankings and the social impact that universities make in their context. But the measures we make inside universities, as David said, they tend to be either conventional research measures or they, be, they tend to become a about the outcomes and the bottom line. We're not good at measuring culture in universities and we're not good at measuring the impact that we're making with learning technology was his point. And because of that, we're not good at articulating the strength or otherwise of our student experience. I mean, another thing that's been becoming more evident in the higher education sector this last week or so is the with the continuing challenges around borders and, and vaccines, slow rollouts and virus um, virus acceleration and growth around the world is that our international students numbers continue to be really challenged and look like they will be longer into the future and at the moment still the the universities that they're choosing to come to in Australia are probably being governed by research ranking quality rather than really good insights into student experience and any measure of culture or how people are using technology. And this is despite the fact that our government continues to call for universities to look to online markets and particularly global online markets as as where they need to be moving towards so all the pointers are towards higher education following the leads that that you've observed in other sectors but it still doesn't seem to be happening quickly enough it, it does it's quite interesting so one of the things that every board in a commercial sense is a demands from their organization is an engagement study they need to know how engaged employees are for the simple reason how productive will they be and, and now more and more boards are asking for culture because we know that culture actually determines engagement. So it's a very straightforward proposition. Yet the, a lot of the higher education uh, entities and universities that we've spoken to, the idea of having a culture study is somewhat of a novelty. It's a new idea entirely, a climate survey perhaps, but actually a culture study to suggest how do we work, what is our way of working. We have to start there before you can start looking at how does it need to change. Well, I, 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 th I think that's absolutely right. And you used the example a little bit earlier of, of, of Blockbuster and Netflix. I was um, just looking at the Netflix culture um, charter and some of their descriptions of what that is within that organisation and couldn't be more different from a university. They, they have an aversion to rules. They have the concept of dream teams being something other than basketball players, but about how striving for excellence in everyone that's working around you. The idea that you really promote innovation and are open and sharing with all of your strategy and your plans and how you're going about things. It's really worth a look, the, the descriptions of the Netflix culture. And the contrast between that and cultures in universities, particularly under the pressure of, of um, financial constraints and this pressure to move towards hybrid, seems to be telling people how to do things, measuring whether they're doing what you want them to do rather than they're achieving new outcomes and really detrimental steps towards culture rather than things that build it. I think there's a long way to go, which is, I think, David's closing message to us of, are our leaders showing enough vision and enough perception to, to really, um, you know, to, to see this as a time of opportunity rather than challenge? And it is going to be quite obvious. So the, the culture diagnostic that we've developed for the higher education sector is the only one of its kind in Australia and possibly even globally. So I'm going to be fascinated to see which universities approach us and say, sure, we, we need a greater understanding and insight into our culture so that we can effectively adapt sustainably over time. 
Well, isn't it, isn't it great that we're now starting to use some of that expertise and that diagnostic with a couple of universities around the country? Um, we've seen we've seen and been able to um, reproduce the strategies that universities are following um, around different states of Australia. But we all know, and 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 those clients and those leaders know that unless you've got a culture to meet your strategy, it's not going anywhere. And reaching out for help and trying to get measurements and interventions that shape the culture to be what you need to be is what you've learned over many years in the corporate sector and we now know is so vital for the higher education sector. Absolutely. And that's all we have time for on this episode of HeadX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.